Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brett Tomlinson. Our guest this month is biographer David Michaelis, class of 79. He's written critically acclaimed portraits of two artists, N.C. Wyeth and Peanuts creator Charles Schultz. And his latest work, Eleanor, explores the life of one of the most remarkable women of the 20th century, Eleanor Roosevelt. She was first lady for 12 years, spanning most of the Great Depression and the Second World War. But as David makes clear, Eleanor's influence as a humanitarian and as a savvy politician predated the Roosevelt's time in the White House and continued in the decades following her husband's death. David, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm anxious to talk about the book, but I want to start with a bit about your path as a writer. You were an English major at Princeton, is that right? I was, yep. And by the time you had finished uh, your senior thesis, you had already uh, co-authored a book uh, with, a, with another Princetonian, uh, John Aristotle Phillips, who had written his junior paper on how to design an atomic bomb. Uh, quite a story there. Uh, but did you, did you graduate hoping to, to write nonfiction as a, as a career? I did, and the course that John McPhee has long taught and many generations now uh, later have emerged into professional writing from uh, McPhee's Literature of Fact course happened to be taught the spring I applied for it by Robert K. Massey, a biographer, which I suppose must have been some kind of clue that I kind of ignored for a while because what happened to me in the course was that I instantly realized that my notions of fiction writing that I had developed in the creative writing program uh, at uh, on Nassau Street were somewhat um, inflated or maybe I wasn't so cut out that way, but that there was a sense of paragraphs and sentences and commas that the literature fact course gave me almost immediately a kind of almost plastic, tangible sense of words um, and syntax and grammar in a way that I'd never really encountered it before. And as well, a kind of energy toward reporting and toward going out in the world and 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 bringing back um, bringing back the back the goods. And that course really changed my life. I mean, I remember doing reporting on a in a kind of Superman style telephone booth in Firestone Library in between classes and getting incredibly excited and turned on by the idea that you could pick up a phone and in those days and call anybody anywhere and get the story at least part of it and then begin to look through um, the uh, the stacks themselves. And it was just an incredibly exciting course of time. And it projected me out into the world pretty fast, um, even more quickly in some ways than writing a book. Um, and certainly my thesis, which was the last stab attempt at fiction, also persuaded me that it was time to turn to nonfiction. So I entered the world of New York um, City journalism as a freelancer. And long story short, it was really the biography form itself that Bob Massey, whose work I had admired a great, great deal, uh, that became my path and became the, the ultimate uh, kind of plan, really, for, for how to bring a lot of the different things that journalism couldn't do into a, um, into a focus, into a narrative that had a beginning, middle, and an end, and especially an end. Fiction had always baffled me. Uh, I never knew how to end things, whereas uh, with a biography, of course, you know what the end's going to be. The, the amount of work that goes into the types of biographies that, that you write uh, is extraordinary. It, it's years and years of work. Uh, what about that process appeals to you? 
Well, I mean, I, I don't want to go too heavily on the Princeton of it all, but truly the open stacks of Firestone Library were the beginnings for me of an actually uncanny sense, and I don't want to get all mystical about it, but an uncanny sense that when you're looking for something, things will actually come to your fingertips. I mean, I, I think you can, if you're fairly intuitive, you can probably do it, you know, as an exercise yourself, just by walking down an open stacks, when you're looking for something, letting your fingers find your way to things, you will find things there. And, and I think that um, you'll go in a card, old fashioned card catalog search to a single book and it's always the books. Uh, this was a McPhee lesson actually. It's always the books to the right, the left and up and down and around it that could draw your attention and somehow bring you deeper into the subject. And that's always what it is for me and always has been and really started on B floor. I mean, literally. And, and I think, um, that style has changed because of the internet, which is now full of rabbit holes. It's not just the books above to the right and the left on that metal stack. It's actually these extraordinary rabbit holes. And my, um, my subject, Eleanor Roosevelt, created one of the biggest rabbit holes of all time, for me anyway, which was an unexpected one, which was that in the old days, you know, of course, I would actually get literally seasick by looking at microfilm, having to track something through a newspaper was was a bit of a nightmare and actually it limited i think what you could do and limited what you physically you just couldn't unless you were a complete freak you couldn't really quite get as far as you nothing like today today with eleanor roosevelt uh there were at least 10 to 15 reporters covering her every day for different newspapers and then the wire stories going out to uh local papers across the country but what I discovered on newspapers.com and any simple now simple website like that was that Eleanor could be seen in real time in ways that previous biographers and previous uh, students and scholars wouldn't have dreamed of been able to see her. And the detail was quite something. And also just simply to hear her saying things to reporters at the time that hadn't made it into the final draft of history, so to speak. And we're in the first draft of history and which would change inflections and you'd, you'd hear her speaking in different ways much more harshly actually often and negatively about things she'd be asked you know about her husband having just been elected governor of new york and she'd be quite frank saying you know it really doesn't matter half as much to me that franklin was just elected governor if governor smith al smith running for president if, if he's not going to be president it just won't make that much of a difference to any of us and so to see her being that candid with reporters um, all, again, through this sort of internet rabbit hole of newspapers.com and, and others like it, was to see her anew. And that was really my project um, with Eleanor from the beginning, was to find a way to tell the life of Eleanor, not only in one volume, but to tell her clean and to tell her in a way that was closer, maybe closer to the way she had actually lived her life. That's always the, the hope. It's a great distortion biography, um, but it is the hope that you will find a new way of looking. And I think I did. And it's extraordinary, not just that she was so broadly covered by the news, but that she she wrote her own column, that she was, a you know, for, for many years, a syndicated columnist. Um, how how important was that for you to have that resource? And, and how important was that for her to, to kind of have that unfiltered um, connection with the American public? Those incredibly great, both really great questions because it's absolutely true. I mean, I think actually Eleanor Roosevelt, as she wrote My Day, uh, which was what we now think of as a live blog, uh, every day, 500 words uh, filed at 4 p.m. It forced her to sit down and every day record how she had had 
the thoughts she had had, the interactions she had had. But what it really did was it connected her. She, she asked people when she first began, please tell me what's on your mind. Please let me know. Please communicate with me. And she, the letters would flood in by the hundreds of thousands. And that wasn't really the connection. The connection was actually in her movement, in her mobility, in the velocity with which she, she got around the country and the way, you know, people came to the president, but, but Mrs. Roosevelt came to you and she would connect with you. She saw democracy as an act of reciprocity. It wasn't just about balancing acts of institutions. It was about how we treated each other. It was about how people understood each other in communities. And she took the theme of reciprocity and, and brought it to life. I mean, made it act active, made it, brought it into action. And the column was one way, actually, that she constantly reciprocally uh, communicated with, with the, the reading public, which might seem as if it had been a limited one, but at the time, uh, it was actually enormous. And uh, for me, who had written a biography of Charles Schultz and therefore began my days, my happy days when I was writing that book, I'd read about 15 or 20 Peanuts uh, comic strips first thing as I sat down. And it was through that process, which was actually a digital process, and therefore I could do it in real time and or I could search themes and subjects through a word search. But if I did it in real time, I began to see that actually it was a, it was a form of diary for Schultz. And, and actually with somebody with a pen in their hand and ink at the end of a, a nib, it is a, not a psychiatric or psychological exercise, but it's certainly an act of self-revelation because so much is under restraint in the form itself of cartooning in these four panels. Eleanor was very similar and in fact, really one of the places my book began was in the basement, strangely enough, of 200 Madison Avenue, the United Media Syndicate, had it been the United Feature Syndicate, and in 1950, that's where Peanuts began. A uh, small, round-headed kid, you know, appeared in the very first strip, and Charles Schultz, a young man from Minnesota, was its, uh, was its strip artist, was the strip artist and author. He, um, he had sold this without any hope uh, of, of it becoming anything more than something that would probably vanish quickly. And I was allowed to see in the basement these very early records of the first year. And as I came upon the banker's boxes in which were stored uh, first peanuts what, and, and all the correspondence that went with it, what was right next to it alphabetically, R.S., was Roosevelt. And I looked in, I thought, oh, that's right. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a column. And, you know, I pulled out one big, huge blue galley and it the first thing I read was a description of starlight uh, from a sleeping porch up in the Hudson Valley. And I thought, Eleanor Roosevelt? And then the next thing was, you know, talking about uh, uh, the refugees after the war. I said, well, yeah, this sounds more like a, but it kept varying. And I kept seeing that there was much more subtlety and nuance and especially observation. She was a first class noticer. She observed and saw things that other people wouldn't have and that other people in public life tend not to or tended not to at the time. What a great way to capture this sense of motion because she was such an action figure. She left thousands of words, millions of words. She, there's millions of documents. But my project, my book was, my attempt was to free her from the archives and free her from the words and to see her in action. And that was really my, always my essential litmus test as turning points and as events took place in the story. Um, I would always try to find out what did she do? Not what she said or wrote, not the record she left, but what did she next do? And, and one of the things that comes through in the book is 
the effect that Eleanor had on the people she encountered, you know, we may think of FDR as sort of the charmer of the, of the couple, but, but she also could make quite an impression. Do you, have, do you have any favorite examples of that that came through from, from the research? Well, yeah, I mean, two, th- two really good ones, um, and, and one, one's general and one's specific, but people thought of Eleanor Roosevelt, and I, in fact, encountered this frequently, even speaking to women, um, even women, you know, actresses and people who um, would, you would think would be far more sensitive uh, about public presentation, and especially today, but people thought she was ugly. People had this I- illusion, and a myth had been created around this illusion, that Eleanor Roosevelt, who had buck teeth and a and uh, uh, she herself, by the way, promoted this. She, she would often, she was very self-deprecating by nature, but you know, a, a short chin and buck teeth and a, and, and, a, and a face that often was at rest during a photograph, photographic session earlier in her life or was, um, was stern or was uh, thoughtful. And so she didn't translate. She was literally not photogenic. There was, there were, it was hard for her to have her picture taken. When people therefore saw her in real life, they were stunned. Uh, first of all, they were stunned by her height. She was just under six feet, but the way she carried herself, uh, shoulders back and, and slightly tilted forward, sort of in the, almost the stance of a cross-country skier and with great loping strides. And people, even, even you know, a six-foot-one uh, six man like Ernest Hemingway would see her and say, and would write down in his diary, my God, she's enormous. She's, what, what, a, what a remarkable woman. And people would be floored by her, her eyes and, and her eyes, which were taking in so much, but also were taking you in and seeing you and reading you. And she read people in, and read gestures and read faces and read expressions in micro uh, aggressions, micro expressions. She was a, an early pathfinder in, in the world of microaggressions. And you actually see it in her writing that how, how closely she understood this and how closely she understood it was a part of politics and how tough her skin became because of it, how, what a strong hide she developed. Uh, but that's another story. In her presentation with people, they saw her seeing them and they felt seen. And it happened time and time again. She made, of course, the point, you know, you, one thinks of Eleanor Roosevelt as a kind of do-gooder and, and, and as a um, sort of a, you know, a school teacher on the move, uh, telling you to eat your vegetables and do your homework. And, and that was all there. But what she was in person was a far more, far lo- looser, uh, not informal, but everything about her flowed. And you felt a sense of flow and energy and transformation. And people felt literally transformed by her when they saw her and when they met her. It was, in a way, a transaction that allowed you to think you had something to give her. She, some, she looked into you and expected something from you. And a lot of people didn't feel at the time that they would have something that to give the first lady of the United States, Eleanor. You didn't see people like that. People didn't. There, there was so much less exposure. You saw Eleanor Roosevelt as a giant of the newsreels in your movie house once a week. You, you didn't see her constantly on a little screen in your hand or on your, on your desk. Uh, you saw her, your, her picture in the paper. You saw her in news. She was a figure of enormous uh, uh, reach and radiance. And people, when they saw this in real life, were, were, were moved and, and never forgot it. The other encounter I wanted to mention was her own sort of horror when she finally got permission to go to the South Pacific as First Lady during the Second World War. And she had uh, uh, paid her own way to the West Coast so as not to, uh, you know, no one could criticize her for using government funds 
to make at least that much of the trip. But she got on a transport and she went down and made an 18-day trip to the South Pacific where men had been fighting and blood had been shed in ways that had never been seen or, or, or experienced by even U.S. Marines in warfare, in any warfare before. It was some, The South Pacific War was something new. And Eleanor Roosevelt knew that she should be there somehow as she had been, uh, but that uh, in other, you know, going to hospitals, going, going to see troops, the, the war had transformed her too and her job. And she donned a Red Cross uniform. She had been a uh, co-director of the Office of Civil Defense at the beginning of the war. And each time she landed on one of the Pacific Islands, when she arrived, men were waiting, hoping that Anne Sheridan, the oomph girl, or Betty Grable, or one of the pinup girls would appear suddenly on a plane. And then off this DC-3 would step a little-aged lady in a, in, a, in a grass skirt and with a big smile. And they, they melted. They, they, they actually were thrilled. It was, um, she mirrored a lot of their feelings about home and mother, and uh, there was a, a bond between Eleanor and her own sons that translated equally to uh, the GIs that she then would see one by one by one, as so often in her life uh, in public. She made a point of stopping at every bed in each hospital, in each of the combat zones, and not just... Uh, white troops. Uh, she found the Japanese-American troops who were fighting uh, as GIs, as Marines, the, 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 the American-born Japanese soldiers uh, who were uh, absolutely uh, as, as loyal and, and hard fighting and harder fighting than, than any other man in, 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 in the front lines of the Pacific War. But she knew that going to see them would be incredibly important. She also uh, wowed the generals and Admiral Halsey and everybody else who had doubted that she would do anything but sort of make a make a, a sort of softy kumbaya visit. She was tough. She was gritty. She knew how to talk to men and she knew how important it was for them that, where are you from? You know, soldier, I'm from Muncie, Indiana. Oh, I know your town. I've been to your town. I remember that. And, and, they, and she connected in ways that no one had ever connected. And she did this all through her public life, and it was always a matter of the individual, always a matter of, of who was right in front of her. In contrast to the, the woman she became, Eleanor, as a child, sounds like someone who had a lot of trouble fitting in, uh, particularly after losing both of her parents. How do you think that experience shaped her, and, and, and what was it about her childhood that, that, that made it so difficult? Well, it, it was made difficult by the fact very simply put, she lost her mother, her younger, her older younger brother, she had two brothers, and the older of which, as well as her father, all within 19 months by the age of 10. By the age of 10, she was an orphan. And she had one younger brother now to look after. And she was sent as an orphan with her younger brother to live under the care of her grandmother with aunts and uncles who were all in a sort of old fashioned Edith Wharton-like uh, Hudson River, uh, and uh, old New York family that was down, coming very far down at its heels and falling into itself into addiction and alcoholism and disrepair and dysfunction. And she became, out of these experiences of losing her parents and, and joining a family that was highly dysfunctional, she became a child adult. She became this sort of Dickensian, little Nell-like figure leading around those uncles and aunts at, and taking care of them and bailing them out when they were arrested and, ha and went before a judge, it was she who showed up with the bail money. It was Eleanor who became a, 
without any way of knowing how to do this, but finding within herself increasing strength uh, and, and, and an ability to manage and to feel uh, needed and therefore useful, she had what we now call agency out of her own dis misfortunes and, and the dysfunction of her family. And the odd thing is that um, when she met Franklin Roosevelt, her fifth cousin, he was in a very different place in his life. They were about the same age, uh, but he was an only child who had been coddled and swaddled and, and cared for by a mother who thought he was already president of the United States and treated him like that. And there was nothing more executive and high functioning and, uh, and royal than Franklin Roosevelt. And what Eleanor and he both had, on the other hand, was a sort of compact, I always thought of it as a compact of oddballs. Because Franklin, for all of his uh, supreme confidence and, and sense of place and, and sense of mastery that, uh, and from an early age, in the world was not very comfortable and was not very comfortable among young men in his peer group and among people out in the world had to learn not to be the privileged, elite, uh, snobbish, uh, uh, entitled young man, had to learn a lot of things about people and the world. And Eleanor, who went much faster than he did into the world of, of uh, settlement houses and social work and social justice, was an early influence on him in that area. But for both of them, it was the same throughout their lives. It was pain itself. It was the facing of pain. It was the understanding of pain and not the running from or denial of pain that allowed them to become people who could translate their own pain into into public good and into public uh, service. One thing that I, I think really drives your book are, are these fairly intense periods of, of, of inspiration in, in Eleanor's life. So I'm thinking of, you know, first her time at boarding school where she sort of finds her voice uh, working for the Red Cross during the First World War, later on, you know, exploring uh, rural poverty uh, during, during the Depression. Do you see a, a common thread in, in the things that inspired her, the things that, that she was most passionate about? Yes, um, I, I think it's the, I think it's the sense that if you can do something for one person in a community, if you can do something for a single cause, you will find a way to expand that outward. Um, I'm thinking now of Arthur Dale, the, the homestead community, in um, rural Appalachia in West Virginia that she was not a great success um, in, its, in its building because there were all sorts of problems actually, uh, slips between the government and, and the actual creation of the town uh, itself. But what Eleanor did was she did raise private funds. She raised government money. She used New Deal energy and New Deal uh, sources to create for people who lived in a town where there had been nothing create a sense of purpose and a sense of community and a sense of reality that was long lasting, far longer lasting than, than when we think of these uh, homestead communities in, in the New Deal. Um, they seem to be temporary. They actually lasted a lot longer than we, than, than we originally thought. And I think what she created always with these was a sense that this can be done. And if this can be done, then something else can be done. And that sense of building and, a bu and building blocks uh, to wider and wider is why you see somebody going from, in her own life, from a woman who thought she literally would never be able to speak a sentence in public to becoming through a wife of a government official in Washington, D.C., the first lady of New York State, 
the first lady of the United States, the first U.S. representative of the U.N. to becoming the uh, uh, chair of the commission that created a document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that went to all communities and all nations and asked all people to agree, um, 18 nations on, its, on, its, on the drafting committee, uh, what are human beings? What are their rights? What does belong to them in their communities? What does belong to them? And how, how can we state this in a way to prevent anything happening to individual human beings the way it's just happened to 6 million uh, in the Holocaust, the way it's just happened to 19, 20 million uh, 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 casualties in this war that's just been fought? How can we prevent war? So the, the, these, to, to go from the, the micro to the macro is the continual arc of Eleanor's life. And I think that um, there's a certain fearlessness there uh, that is required. I mean, I, I, I kind of would sometimes think, how is she going to do it? Really, how is she going to do this this time? She is in no sense qualified and knows it, and yet would always trust a, 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 an inner strength, something that she could trust in herself. She was often criticized in her own life, or, or people would say it's only because of being married to the President of the United States. It's only being because Franklin Roosevelt was a four-term president and, and one of the greatest politicians of all time that she could do what she did. It's really not true. And, and it's not only because I'm seeing it from her point of view, but she truly was a far more evergreen person in a way, even than her husband, because she kept growing. And, and as a result of that, I, you know, on certain issues, she was much more progressive than her, than, than her husband. Uh, I know, thinking of the anti-lynching legislation and, and uh, internment of, of Japanese American, Americans. Um, when things that she believed in were not moving forward, how did she deal with that? Uh, particularly when, you know, the person who could move them forward was, was her husband and, and he was, was choosing not to. Yeah, um, the, the, both those um, are, are too shocking. I mean, they get, it gets shocking as you see often also how long it went on, how long Franklin Roosevelt had the stranglehold of the Southern Democrats uh, as part of his coalition and part of his New Deal legislation, the needs for his New Deal legislation. And you see how, um, how he would not uh, take a stand on lynching. And, and, and you see him as, as Hitler uh, made clearer and clearer what was going to happen uh, to the Jews of Europe uh, and how re refugees began appearing, uh, how little Franklin Roosevelt, um, how, how little he responded at first, how he even called the Avion com Conference and didn't go himself that was to deal with the what was going to happen to refugees, uh, yet he himself would not show up. And of course, worst of all, um, an executive order um, putting Americans, uh, American-born Japanese uh, owners of shops and owners of property and owners uh, and people with businesses all throughout California into concentration camps. Eleanor's response to that is extremely telling, uh, partly because she was in a position in the first flush of paranoia and horror and uh, uh, panic that gripped California and Californian officials. She herself was a government official at the time, uh, the co-director of the Office of Civil Defense and flew directly to the West Coast. And as she made her way um, as a government official, soothing and calming and doing all the things that you think of Eleanor Roosevelt doing right after the uh, uh, bombing at Pearl Harbor, 
she also met with Japanese American groups. She, she tried to calm fear. She tried to hear and listen and let them know that there was somebody in Washington who cared uh, about them. And it was a, at the time, uh, I think probably as important as anything anybody else was doing. I think it became more important when actually the camps were established and unrest and rioting broke out at the Manzanar camp and FDR not knowing who else could do the job sent Eleanor Roosevelt and his wife to the Manzanar camp. And, and, and she did bring a kind of, uh, at least a, some rest and calm to the situation, but was always struggling against the policies and struggling against the politics that, that her husband was, um, was either making a terrible mistake about it, and she had no, no compunctions of telling him so, and he had no compunctions, actually no, no problem with hearing her say so. I have to say one of the things I, lo I love best was finding all the times during the presidency where she would say to him, you know, tomorrow I'm gonna write about X or Y, this controversial subject, that controversial subject in, in my column, will you have any problem? And he'd say, no, you go ahead. You write, you write what you need to write. And if anyone criticizes me, I'll just tell them I can't control you. And they sort of had a, had a nice way about that, you know, sort of standing shoulder to shoulder and, 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 and facing the world together. He did support her. He, he would use Eleanor um, uh, in, in ways that, you know, I think she recognized that she was being used in a sense. But she, he also um, really, he deeply respected what she was doing and, 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 and recognized that without her, a lot of things wouldn't be happening um, in the Roosevelt administrations. By the end of her life, uh, she was a heroic figure, an inspiration for a generation that was just sort of coming to power in the 50s and, and 60s, uh, women and men. Uh, what do you see as Eleanor's legacy today, uh, not just among first ladies, uh, but, but in the world at large? Uh, human rights is without question the, the concept that became because of the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights, uh, the document itself, uh, al although it did not become part of U.S. legislation, although it did not become um, uh, the basis for treaties, it became the touchstone, the lodestar, the, 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 the north star for how we would shape foreign policy for over 50 years. Human rights was on the agenda right up until four years ago. Um, it, it is on, on, the, on the United States agenda, the agenda of the world's greatest democracy at the time, we thought. Um, and today we have doubts, I think, um, partly because our human rights, our record on human rights is so compromised. Uh, Eleanor is equated with a view of human rights that is as universal as you could ever imagine it being. She also is seen, I think, as somebody who brought to the individual their own duty to their government, to citizenship. How are we going to treat each other? And how is democracy going to be reciprocal? Not just for those in power, obviously, and those in the ruling and educated and uh, uh, corporate classes, but for the least among us. And I think when, when people talk about uh, caring for communities and caring for people, uh, neighbors caring for uh, uh, the elderly, caring for minorities and, and those who are struggling um, at the lower ends of society. There is an Eleanor Roosevelt legacy that you see 
um, alive. It's alive in people and alive in people who are doing things and, act, and being active and staying, staying in a fight that will go on and will go on because as she herself rec rec recognized and we now see actively, democracy isn't a solution. It, it's, it is an ongoing struggle. And I think she, she embraced that struggle and embraced the unfinishedness of it. And I gather a sort of footnote, uh, your mother worked on Eleanor's uh, public television show in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, do you remember meeting her? It's one of my earliest and dimmest, but earliest memories. Um, and it's dim because it's so limited, but it was literally a, another day just before airtime at the WGBH um, makeshift studio at Brandeis University. And Eleanor Roosevelt would pour tea and sit at a table with uh, young, young Senator Kennedy, young Henry Kissinger at Harvard, young, you know, people, um, young Hubert Humphrey, uh, a guest from Ghana, a guest from the Soviet Union, uh, and they would have a roundtable discussion. So that was all just about to air. And uh, I was a four-year-old child whose mom had somehow unleashed him onto the studio floor where I looked up and saw this figure of, I remember a, a sort of nimbus of white hair and I thought to myself um, in no logical way, but I simply blurted out what I wanted when I saw this person. And as everyone did with Eleanor Roosevelt, everyone asked her for something. And I did too. And I asked her, uh, as my memory tells me, uh, for juicy fruit. So uh, I asked for a stick of gum. And what I remember her, the only continuation of the memory is that in some, some part of her response, she bent down. And as she did bend down toward me, from her eyes, from her face, literally poured light. I mean, a sense of, I literally felt a sense of goodness coming from this person in her amusement and merriment uh, at this little boy asking for gum. But I did feel that at four from Ellen Roosevelt. And, that, and that's the extent of the memory. Well, David, this has been great uh, speaking, speaking with you about the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Brett. It's really a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit our archives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and on the Princeton Alumni Weekly website, paw.princeton.edu. That's paw.princeton.edu.